You're listening to The Tilt Show. Tech in Latam today. The show that tilts Latin American tech to the next level. Next level. From the hottest startups to established businesses and the most up-to-date tips and tricks that surround all aspects of running and operating a tech business today. Here's your host, Niels Siskins. So today I'm talking to Bill Davis. Bill Davis is a finance expert from New York. He has been going to Medellin for at least 20 years. So he is a very senior expat, I would say. He is specializing in big capital. Currently he is uh, running a multi-family office. If you're not familiar with what's a family offices or what's a family office, family offices are there for rich families or rich individuals, like high net worth individuals. Think business, families, think, you know, artists, think soccer players or basketball players. Those kind of people, they put their money with a finance expert, which is called a family office. And they'll make sure they distribute that. Um, and mo- actually, uh, Bill has a, a history here. Uh, he started investing in Medellin a little bit here and there. He has been running a business in Medellin as well. So I'll ask him all about that. And he also tells us about you know his adventures in Medellin. So without further ado, here's Bill Davis. Yeah, welcome, Bill. Thank you for joining the Tilt Show today. It is my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. So I'm in the understanding right now you're based in New York. Is that correct? I am here in the city of dreams, the city that used to never sleep. But with the pandemic, the world has changed and New York City does not look like it has throughout its existence. So it is a very quiet place to be right now. So it's the uh, big sleeping apple right now. It's is the that... big sleeping apple. That's what it is. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, so you and I actually have something in common. We both love Latin America. We both love, and specifically, Medellin. And I understand you've been coming there a very long time. So, yeah, when, when did you start going to Medellin? Yeah, literally, I was probably one of the pioneers as an American first and certainly as a an American of color. Uh, they had never seen anyone like me before. The story is interesting on how I, uh, I arrived. I was in Miami and uh, living and working in Miami, and I was struggling with a company that uh, a buddy of mine and I, when it was a, a developer in Miami, we were struggling finding quality employees. At the end of the day, what would happen, the culture in Miami is that it's a beach culture. Everyone wanted to go to the beach and party as soon as the end of, of, of the workday took off. So after that, you know, we found ourselves there by ourselves. And but to our chagrin, there was two employees that were more dedicated and committed. And they were both from Colombia, a gentleman from Cali and a young lady from Medellin. And she recommended to me, she's like, look, stop worrying about these lazy Americans, forget the, uh, the stereotype there, and go to Medellin 
and bring back some good employees like us. And you'll be helping people there and you'll be helping uh, the company by getting productive employees and probably even at a, a relatively lower cost. And uh-huh. like, yeah, you know, I said, yeah, that makes sense. Don't get me wrong. I understand that, you know, and I've been traveling in Latin America a little bit in the Caribbean. I'm from New York City. However, you know, it was 2002 and, you know, they were still blowing people up. You know, bombs were going off. It was still, uh, you know, the streets were still a little uh, different. You know, the the, oh, yeah. the the war hadn't ended effectively. The Cali cartel had taken over and they still was uh, a lot of action in the streets. And she looked at me and says, look, I wouldn't say this to anyone else. You can handle it. Go there, get some employees and come back. And I'm like, oh, wow. <laughs> so I took my time, thought about it. I began meeting people from Columbia, a close buddy of ours that moved from uh, the New York, Boston area with us to Miami, met a Colombian woman and married her. And I said, this is interesting. They're wonderful people. Let me uh, get up my courage and go take a look. So I did. She arranged for me to have a secretary when I got there, arranged for a place for me to stay, et cetera. And, and, and that was in Cali? You initially landed no, in Cali? No, this, this, this was directly in Medellin. We decided. Okay, Medellin. Medellin. Mm-hmm. So Medellin was my first stop. So uh, I went through the process, got on the plane, and uh, it was interesting because you know, the, the entire plane, you know, you know how you when everyone is staring at you, like, what are you doing on this plane? Because there were no Americans on the plane at all. <laughs> and then for them to see uh, not only a black American, but a six foot three, four hundred, uh, three. Well, I was almost I was about three hundred and fifty pounds at that time. They had never seen anyone my size either. <laughs> and uh, and I'm like, OK, this is interesting. But, you know, let's let's execute. Let's keep going. So I was uh, I had just come back from Europe prior. And uh, so, you know, I I fell asleep on the plane. I'm waking up and my expectation was arriving in, you know, what we call a shanty town in the Caribbean and other parts of Latin America where, you know, you you know, there's uh, some very modest homes and in in local communities, et cetera. And we were landing. And and uh, Medellin is, is 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 an interesting setup because the airport is at the top of a mountain where the city is in a valley. Yeah, that's and, correct. Right. So when you land, you land in uh, what's called Rio Negro at the top of the mountain, uh, close to you know I think nine thousand feet above sea level, and you're in the clouds. And I'm mm-hmm. looking out the window because everyone's looking out the window. I'm like, what do they see? And I look out the window. And I see a topography that may have been the most beautiful topography I've ever seen. Better than Africa, better than I thought I said, I thought I was on the wrong flight. I'm like, oh, my God, did I get on a flight to Zurich? Am I in Switzerland? Am I, am I in the Alps now as opposed <laughs> to being in Latin America? And but I'm like, no, no, let me get my bearings. And from the landing through immigration, she had a car waiting for me. And you have to ride around the mountain in order to get down into the valley. And it was interesting mm-hmm. because as you're riding around the mountain, there's a local airport that's down in the valley. So there's planes that are landing in the valley as well. 
And so you're looking out into the clouds over the side of the road and I'm above watching planes landing below me as I'm driving around the mountain, which was just a new experience for me. I said, wow, this just feels weird. It's different. And as we're riding around, the topography, the countryside is looking absolutely beautiful. And I'm like, okay, it's a beautiful country. But now we're going into the city. We go into the little village area that's called uh, Poblado. And I'm looking at it and I'm like, this is interesting. It's 2002. This is a city that has been fenced off from the rest of the world. It's in a mountainous territory. There are rarely any foreign visitors to the town. They, They were going through this internal civil drug war. So no one was going there because it was so violent. And I'm walking around and I'm looking at some beautiful homes and apartment buildings and they were building new malls and they had a a modern train station, more modern than what I'm used to in in New York City and Boston. And I'm like, Uh how in the world did all of this happen with a homogeneous group of people with limited access? Because at that time, the Internet was just burgeoning. They weren't really connected. They, no one had internet on their phones for the most part. Uh-huh. But how in the world do they even understand how this should occur? So I was just absolutely confused. I'm like, it's beautiful, et cetera. The level of treatment that I received from my from my secretary there, my driver when I arrived, the apartment where I was staying was just immaculate. It was beautiful. And I'm like, I'm, I'm like, I was in a state of shock for the first day. You, you, you thought you landed in heaven there for, for a little bit, right? I mean, you were like, how can this place that's so nice, green, lush, green fields probably around the city at that time, definitely because it wasn't as developed as it's now, right. 20 years later. I mean, you were like, how can this place be so violent? Right, so violent, right? Have you have you ever experienced any violence at that time in Medellin? So like, that's interesting. Help? I'm gonna get to that. That's so interesting. You asked that question. Um. So, but yes, I couldn't believe that this is what it was looking like. So, uh, so the secretary had an agenda for me to go and visit different parts of the city. I was going to meet with community organizations that were doubling as employment agencies, et cetera. And she says to me, she says, look, you know, Medellin is in transition and, you know, we still have a civil war going on and we're trying to negotiate a peace treaty that is uh, bringing the warriors effectively back into the city and getting them acclimated to living there. So a lot is happening with that. So where you need to go in the communities outside of this, you know, what's called a zone six high zone residential area where, you know, the foreigners that were there lived as well as the elite of the city were living. She says, you're going to go out into the local communities and meet the people there. However, since the downfall of Pablo Escobar, there's been a number of new cartels, small cartels in the communities where everyone is living that controls their particular community. So Mm -hmm. when you travel the mountain roads, there's only one way in and one way out. 
So they know, they see everything and everyone coming in and out. You need permission to go into the communities. So I've arranged that for you through a special driver. You let me know if you're comfortable with this or not. And uh, if not, we'll come up with another solution. But he is a trusted friend. We've known him for years, et cetera. But you need to know this was Pablo Escobar's last uh, personal driver. And oh, I'm, like, wow. I'm like, wow. So before I can answer, she's like, oh, by the way, he's coming up to the door right now. Boom, boom, boom. He is the door. She lets him in. He looks at me. He's like, whoa. He's like, grande. and I'm like, yo, that's me. And he's like, let's go. And I told us, I didn't even get a chance to answer. I said, listen, I'm hitting the streets with him. Let's go. And so I switched from my uh, cap toes or my wingtip shoes and the suit that I had on. I said, listen, let me throw on my jeans and I throw on my Timberland boots like I'm in Brooklyn in a hoodie. And we went out and hit the streets. And uh -huh. It was amazing. So we went from neighborhood to neighborhood around the mountain from the bottom of the village all the way up to Santa Domingo. So at this oh, wow. now, but you had to drive there. It took a while. It took over an hour, I think. There was no Metro Cable at that time. So you had to go the local routes, literally stop in every single town. And oh, uh, and what we did when we stopped in every town, he would stop, he would pull over. And he's like, wait a minute. He would go in and see the capo of that community and introduce me, you know, let him know that I'm there and what I was doing and that I come through, you know, with family. Her name was uh, Doris Rosales and uh, who I was and what I was doing there. And then he would call me in. I would go in, introduce myself, et cetera. And they would look at me and says, like, not a problem. You know, welcome. Welcome to Medellin. And please continue your journey. And I hope you find someone that's good. And I like what you're doing. It's a good thing. So we did that a number of times. And at that time, they had just they were in the midst of building. It, it hadn't been completed yet. What they call the Biblioteca which was a, oh, yeah, yeah. which it's, was a, a library yeah, yeah. at the top. So that area became the meeting ground, at least in the daytime, because there was still some activity at night for meeting candidates to work. And, and at that time, I met all the kids in the neighborhood. Actually, I hope I can find I've got pictures of the kids. And uh, wow. yeah, that uh, they had just built the, the library and the kids had emails. And uh, they all exchanged emails with me and they used to send me emails and messages in Spanish because I was the first foreigner that they had ever met. So oh, it, it was really, really interesting. So it was an amazing experience. The warmth, the love was just absolutely amazing. I couldn't believe it. I was, you know, I got a place immediately. It was a beautiful place. Eventually I opened up an did office. You have to, did you actually overnight stay in Santo Domingo at the time? No, 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 no. At that time, I did not stay in Santa Domingo. So I went back to Poblado. You know, I had to get comfortable with the nighttime scenario. That was a little bit. Oh, yeah. So, Man. yeah. So, no, I went back to Poblado initially. And then, you know, after, you know, I, I, you know, so I started going back and forth for a while. And then next, you know, it started extending for a month. And then I had an office open and then I'm there for six months. And one of the things about Colombia, you know, even, you know, when I say I lived there, I couldn't live there for longer than six months because their 
tax residency program. If you're there for a day over six months, you become a tax resident of the country and I end up I know. double taxed. So uh, I would never stay longer than six months. So I started arranging my travel and I used that as my base. I opened up an office and I brought in contract mm-hmm. employees that did uh, development for me. Uh, a lot of my administrative work I was running a company in Europe at that time in uh, Vienna, Austria, and in London, and they were augmenting my technology staff there. And they were so good in Medellin that I'm like, yo, these these guys are the future. You know, they were rigid. They were, you know, and, and you know, and I utilized the Austrian model in terms of rigidity and structure. And they literally were in alignment with that level of development. Everything they did was literally that quality of work. And I did that for, gosh, for, gosh, a dozen years. And uh, so I worked out of uh, Colombia and I worked out of uh, Europe. And, and when I was in the United States, in Europe and in the United States as well. So that was my introduction. I fell in love. I made uh, a commitment that, you know, as I was a bachelor at that time, that uh, this is a place that I could perhaps retire. I uh, began exploring the rest of the country from the coast to Cartagena, Barranquilla, Santa Marta, to other cities from Cali and Manizales and, and uh, Pereira. And, uh, you know, even spent a little time in Bogota. And uh, as little as possible, I can imagine, right? I mean, Bogota's not so nice, I would say. It's it's very different from the rest of the, city, uh, the, rest of the country. I find it. Every single city has its own culture, flavor, and idiosyncrasies. Medellin is, as a cosmopolitan person, being from New York and living in Boston and in Miami and in Scottsdale, Arizona prior, Mm -hmm. Medellin was, I I call Medellin the Boston of Latin America. It, it It was intelligent. It was it was compact and concise. It was efficient. It was all of the things that Boston uh, was, in my opinion, to the United States. So uh, I fell in love with the cosmopolitan portion of that. But I also fell in love with the laid back coastal culture of Santa Marta. Also fell in love with the uh, the afro-based community in Cali, colombia and the salsa culture so all of them all have you been to quito at all talking about afro so i did not go to quito quito when i when i was in 2002 that it was still that was heavy the fark was in 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 quito so so it, it was a little dangerous people said that i could probably Pass through, but since the city is so Quito is a black city, and uh, they said I might be able to pass through as long as um, my Spanish gets a little bit better. But they could tell from my accent that I'm not from there, and my size as well. But there's some, there's, I met some big uh, people from, particularly some big guys from Choco, from uh, you know Choco Fuerte, that you know I could probably you know assimilate tours but it it was a little bit risky and it wasn't a comfortable trip because it was a long bus ride if you want to go that route and, uh, there was no uh, airport at the time in Quito right now you can fly well, I'm, so i'm so big 
the plane that Avianca didn't fly there. So you had to fly on a little prop. And, yeah. That's and, totally good. Yeah. And, and for me, it's tight, you know, so it's oh, not, yeah. yeah, I try to avoid props at, at all, at all costs. So it didn't make sense at that time to go. And it was, uh-huh. it was before there was uh, what is it? Viva jet and, and the other little local jet airlines now that are moving around Latin America. So it was a little early for that type of, uh, of, of travel. And that's part of the challenge with Latin America and Africa is literally that type of infrastructure traveling within country from city uh-huh. to city is, is, is always a problem. I mean, I would say these days with, you know, Viva Colombia, well, Avianca flies everywhere, right? But especially since Viva came there, I mean, Medellin to Monteria, for example, is $40, right? I mean, it doesn't cost a lot of money. It's just not very comfortable. I agree yeah. with you. If you're- well, you know, that's now that uh, Viva's there. But before, in order to you know navigate, so there were times, like even getting to Cali was hard. There was, there. I don't think there was a direct flight from even Medellin to Cali. You had to go to Bogota to get to Cali. Or you, had uh-huh. to go, or you had to go to Cartagena and fly up into Cali. You couldn't go direct, I think, when I when I started. So so you had challenges like that. So I'll give you other examples. You know, sometimes I would have business meetings on the coast in Barranquilla. So, uh-huh. but I had to go to Medellin at night. So I would, from Miami, I'd fly into Barranquilla for my breakfast meetings, fly back to Miami, and then from Miami, fly into Medellin in the evening. Oh, no way. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that was the most cost-effective way to go. The other Uh challenge is, at that point in time, the only airline flying was a monopoly was American. So, I mean, I would, so flights were, there were many times my flight to Medellin was $1,000 plus. And that's flying coach. Yeah. That's flying coach. $1,000 uh-huh. for a flight out of Miami, where when Spirit and JetBlue finally entered the market, I could do it for, you know, a couple of hundred bucks and, and be good. So we end up, so in order to avoid the, we call that American Airlines tax, very often we flew Copa into Panama, and then uh-huh. and then from Panama we flew into Colombia, or as we got comfortable because you got to remember so yeah so you got to remember the history. You got to remember uh, you know we had to get comfortable flying Avianca because remember Avianca flight was they set a bomb on it and had blown up a few years earlier. So, yeah. So, so I wasn't comfortable with flying Avianca early on. And uh, eventually, I got I became a frequent flyer in Avianca and flew out of Miami back and forth. Mm, so that took a little bit of time. So, what industry was your first company in that you opened in Colombia, or that you already had in in the US, but so, yeah, where you so were looking for staff for? What what the, kind of industry was that? It was a, a mobile payment firm. So. Um, it was a, we were monetizing all of the video gamers around the world with when they wanted to go to uh, if you had a digital asset, a digital good an avatar and you wanted to purchase that instead of purchasing that, you know, so at that time payment walls didn't exist. We created some of the first payment walls so that in multi-country, multi-country, multi-currency payments for those services. 
mm-hmm. so that you can move in the digital space. So that's that was the focus of the business that extended further out. And I was very fortunate because we was early stage. So we were the ones first ones to monetize, you know, Facebook and EA Sports and, and literally all of those games. So I grew that into the largest mobile payment company. Oh wow! Oh wow! So, yeah, so I mean, I'm not gonna ask. I mean, you must have had a humongous exit. Basically, I'm not even gonna ask. So, let me say this: No, I did not have a humongous exit, and the reason being, so I I wasn't a founder of the company. I was brought in uh, by some folk at Goldman Sachs that found the company and didn't know how to to deal with it. And uh, they asked me technically to look in and then eventually they asked me to be the CEO. So so I was well compensated with the equity kicker on the back end. But I was simultaneously running another company in New York City. I was running an investment bank in New York City. So Uh I split between the two. So I'm flying back and forth. And I was trying to believe it or not, even though we were having so much success with this, I was trying to exit this because I had raised money for the investment bank in New York City. So I was just, you know, I was there helping out my, you know, my Goldman Sachs friends in order to make that work. But you know, I saw the potential of it and, and, you know, it was a, so this is, you know, so I'm learning, you know, cultures, I'm a New Yorker and we think, you know, the first culture is the dollar, you know, that's how we operate very often in terms of profitability. (laughs) And it it was one of the first times I ran into a situation where the founders of this company, they spent more time, you know, arguing and fighting over, you know, just crazy, meaningless stuff. And when I wasn't there, they would get into big battles and, they, you know, I'd be getting the phone calls. Please come back right now in order to calm all of that down and get us back to where we need to be because everyone realized they had something. And, you know, I was kind of waiting to get out of that space and I needed to take care of some medical things for myself as well. So believe it or not, I left my equity on the table when I exited because I had to get started with the investment bank in New York City and I didn't have time to stay there, fight, negotiate, and to make sure all of that worked. What It was also the first time I got into a legal scenario that wasn't governed in New York City. So uh, huh. so operating in uh, out of London, our headquarters were in London, operations were in Vienna. I was subject to the laws and the culture of those jurisdictions and territories. So uh-huh. it was a little bit different. So they were pushing for me because I, I was I was on the board of directors as well. And in the bylaws, you were supposed to be an Austrian citizen. So they wanted me to move to Austria full time in order to, to, to complete my uh, my requirements for running that company. I'm like, man, I'm from Brooklyn, New York. I'm, as soon as as soon as we finish this conversation, I'm on the flight. I'm back to New York. I got more work to do. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, so it was an interesting um, size and space, you know, and, and I was of an age at that time where I saw, it's like, listen, I'm not going to, it was a great experience. It was a good scenario. I never thought I'd be doing anything like this in Vienna, Austria. Vienna is a beautiful city, but for me, Austria, the only thing I knew about Austria when I landed was that this is where Hitler was from. That's all I knew. You know, so I didn't really know. So, Not even the Oprah was known to you at the time. Say that again. 
Austria is the capital of the opera, pretty yeah. much. Too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, uh, but don't get me wrong, Austria, they, they embrace me as well, you know, so that's a whole separate, so that's a separate podcast of what I walked <laughs> into, what I walked into, because I walked into a culture of hackers that were pseudo-technologists and they built an infrastructure technically, but they were hackers and they were borderline uh, skinheads. Um, uh. So, and but, you know, not the skinheads that we see in, in marching in the United States. These are the real skinheads. <laughs> These are the real ones, you know, with swastikas on their heads and stuff. You know what I'm saying? From that. Yeah. Country. I so, mean, yeah, there's so. a few of those people still in Europe, I would say, but yeah. Yeah. Um, while we get to it, I mean, while we get to sort of, I'm interested to see because I experienced this culture shock when you get to Medellin. I am six foot three, about 190. Okay. And so we're pretty much the same height. I'm also not the most skinniest person in the world, and I'm very wide. So when people look at me, I mean, they immediately notice that I'm not from that I'm not Paisa, right? So how, how have you experienced sort of blending in imagine, right? Not like, I mean, I'm interested to see like from your perspective, you came about, I would say I came there in 2014. So you came there about, well, almost, well, 15 years before I came there pretty much. How, how was that to integrate with this new culture? So there's no blending in for me in the sense that I, so, so, and that's nothing unique or to say about Medellin is like, I don't blend in, in, in parts of Manhattan. <laughs> I don't blend in, 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 in large swaths of the United States and, and anywhere else either, because I'm a pretty unique figure. Um, mm-hmm. so what I experienced was a welcoming and a warmth that has touched my heart to this day that, we renewed my hope in humanity and what it did. And here's why I'm coming there literally Mm -hmm. out of Brooklyn. I grew up in major violence, gang wars, drug trafficking. It was just absolutely a mess. Navigating New York city was just absolutely a mess during my era. Nothing like what New York looks like. Well, today it's gotten a bit worse in the pandemic, but nothing what it's been like for the past 20 years. And, you know, so I've seen it, you know, been done it, seen it, experienced it all. And the recovery from that only occurred when Giuliani became, you know, a really iron hand with the law and, and made a conscious decision to clean up first the mafia and then all of the graft tied to New York City with a no tolerance open window policy. It was just very rich, mm-hmm. very rough, but it was effective. And then then the next mayor, Bloomberg, was able to take it and grow the economy behind that. So New York was an interesting success story. Medellin, I'm coming there after, you know, still during the a warring period, but post the worst war that, you know, any country has seen in the Western Hemisphere at that point in time. So, you know, I'm, you know, I'm expecting street level all the time and the people being hardened, et cetera. And don't get me wrong, you have those elements exist, but there was a love and a warmth and an embracing of me that it that brings tears to my eyes. It's like I felt 
better. Mm -hmm. I felt loved more by the people there as a human being than I have anywhere else in the world that I've been. Anywhere else in the world that I've been. Absolutely amazing people. Paisa is numero uno el mundo. Todo día. I absolutely love oh, wow. the Paisa person. I, 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 I think you're going to get a few free beers in, in Medellin when you return after when the I pandemic. Return, oh, I think so. Oh, when you hear this. And, and they know it, you know. And, and so to the extent that while I was there in my free time in order to one to help me become more immersed in the culture, to learn the language a little bit better. I started to write songs in Spanish, one which I recorded and it became pretty popular in uh, Medellin as well, called Moreno Grande, about me and my experience from New York to Miami to Medellin. So people became oh, well, can we, can we share, is it on YouTube? Can we share it after the podcast? Um, can I, I, share I, it in the I, will, I will send you a copy of the song. I never posted it on YouTube because at that time as well, YouTube wasn't the platform for that. <laughs> you you got to love that. So uh, and I never followed that further. Literally, after I wrote the song, I wrote it for name is Willie. He's a popular uh, reggaeton artist in Medellin now, but he didn't show up to the studio. So I had to go to London and I didn't have time to wait. So I recorded the song. for. I, first, I just wrote the song and I did the track. Because I'm in New York, Miami. I said, you know what? I'm going to bring you back to me. Because they were interested. Medellin loves hip hop. So I said, I'm going to bring you some stuff to, uh -huh. to, to help with that growth if you wanted to do that. And oh. I wrote the song. He didn't come. I said, well, listen, I'll record it for, for you. And uh, so at least you'll have a demo of how the song is supposed to go. And, um, and, uh, and you can see it. And I wrote it in English and Spanish so they know what it was. So I leave and I'm in London. Uh -huh. And about a week and a half later, I get a phone call from a radio station. And uh, they said, are you Moreno Grande? I said, yeah, how'd you get my phone number? And they said, you know, they got it from my, I think from my assistant at that time, they got it from Juan. And they said, did you write this song, uh, Animal? I said, yeah, I wrote that song for Willie. And they're like, well, the song is like going to number one on the radio here in Medellin right now. I'm like, are you serious? <laughs> and, uh, but I, I, I was gone for a long time. I never got a chance to get back and get deeper into the music because it was just something that was a passion and a hobby at that time. So it was, but oh, wow. I absolutely love it. So I wrote about, I don't know, gosh, a half a dozen songs of which two or three I recorded while I was in the studio. While I was there. So I had some fun with that. Absolutely love Paisa people, love the Paisa culture and, and only have good things to say, even with some of the challenges that they have and they've experienced. So I'm going to answer one of your earlier questions. Have I ever experienced, uh -huh. have I ever experienced crime? So in 20 years, almost 20 years, I have walked the city and I walk it like I walk Brooklyn in my jeans and my tents and I've never had it. And I walk anywhere. I don't care where it is. You know, I go literally to, uh, you know, to, to even some of the communities from Communa 13 to up in Buenos Aires. Never have a problem. Mm -hmm. Never have a problem anywhere I go. It's always, uh, it's, it's, it's always, always well received. And it's so funny because one of the ministers of defense, um, who 
is one of the founders of the Medellin Country Club, called our family office in New York and wanted to uh, uh, work with us on a capital raise in Medellin for some investments they wanted to do. So and so I went to meet him at the uh, at the country club. He had blocked off the entire restaurant for him and I to sit down. He gave me the history of the country club that his father founded and all of this here and eventually how he became the um, one of the ministers of defense in the uh, in uh, when my guy was president when Oliva. Um, no, before was that Ariba or Ariba. no before that? Before that, um, Ariba. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, 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 it'll come back to me when uh, he was president, <laughs> and uh, the, the oh. one that went to Harvard, the one that went to Harvard um, when he was president, okay. and uh, that was part, you know, that he's part of the family with your choice. Oh gosh. Anyway, anyway, we'll go back to, it. and. It's interesting because he, he's sitting down and he's looking at me face to face. And he said, there's a couple of things I need to talk to you about. And I said, what? And he says, well, you know, you're here. You're an American. You're different. Have you experienced any kidnapping? Because people get kidnapped left and right all around me while I was there. Um, have you been kidnapped? Have you been robbed? Have you been drugged? And I said, no, never. Never had a problem with anyone at all. And I'm out. I'm everywhere. Everyone's there. Everyone knows me. I'm walking down the streets. I hear people yelling, Moreno Grande, Moreno Grande. Um, I said, he said, <laughs> he says, I can't believe it. And I said, yeah, I've never had a problem. I said, I've only seen the best of the Paisa. I've never seen. And I've been in places to give you an example. Um, there is a uh, the replacement to um, Pablo Escobar as an organization uh, were based out. Yeah, the Medellin, uh, like the Oficina de Envigado. So in Envigado, so in Envigado, they would meet at a little restaurant in, um, not too far from Parque Envigado. I would go to uh -huh. the same restaurant because it was one of the few restaurants I could go and have fish for breakfast. And uh, so oh, wow. I'd go there, they would make my fish for me, et cetera. And they'd all be there meeting and they would see me. And, you know, and with respect, they would, as soon as they see me, like, come here. And, uh, you know, they asked me, you know, well, tons of questions, et cetera, you know, just regarding my interest there. What am I doing? What's going on? And, uh, you know, I let them know what I was doing. This is the work I was doing back and forth. I love, you know, Medellin. You know, I, I moved from Poblado. I moved into the next town after Empigado into Sabaneta. Ah, yeah. And they were like, I can't believe that you're here and you're doing this, et cetera. And, and I, you know, so I'm sitting there and I, you know, and I know who they are. And so I said, you know, so this is what I do. Tell me what you guys do. And they're like, oh, we're all investors in real estate. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. and they're pointing to the buildings at that time that they were putting, that they were building at that time. So, and then Bigado, uh -huh. Oblado, and then Sabaneta, all the towers that were going up, they were the, you know, they owned the architecture firms, the developers, construction companies, et cetera. You know, that's where, you know, the money got off. Well, let me let me be careful mm -hmm. what I'm saying with all that. But, you know, so I, I met a lot of them. They treated me with love. They wouldn't even let me pay for a drink. I'm drinking Marron Medellin. 
and uh, my licorice drinks with them all day long. I mean, my guado, I'm drinking my guado and my rom medellin with them. And, uh, mm-hmm. and everything was just a great experience. Like I said, I did not have one problem street level or at the top of the pyramid. Um, you know, cause the one thing I learned quickly was, you know, there's tons of street level crime and, you know, you know, I've seen people, you know, I've seen, you know, gun situations happen around me in when I'm in El Centro, but it didn't impact uh-huh. directly. Yeah. So you just, there's street crime all day long. It happens, you know, particularly downtown and around the parks. But the real crime, you know, it happens at the top of the pyramid because it's embedded into the structure and it's organized. It's it's a different thing. Just like you have a government, you have the the organizations that have built their presence and run their businesses the way that they do. And they manage their communities. And and it is done. And and how do I say this? Respectfully and tactfully, very often Mm -hmm. in a manner that where it is opaque to anyone that's walking through the community. People that, as long as everyone's following all the rules, there's never any problems. Only times when they're having some Uh trafficking problems between each other and they have disagreements, then that may spill out. But in the southern part of the city, it was rare that that happened. Normally that happened in the center part of the city and going further north up to uh, towards Bayou. Thank you for listening. All the information about this episode you can find in the show notes. Head over to www.tilt.show. Thank you. <laughs>